You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. Church, let us pray together. Precious Jesus, high and holy, meek and lowly, we look into the humble manger in Bethlehem and we see the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You are the true light that gives light to everyone. You came into the world to save the world. You are the promise of God, the long-awaited Savior of whom the prophets foretold. You are the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. You sustain all things by your powerful word, for in you all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through you and for you. And so, it is right for us to greet you with unceasing praise. We worship the one who is alone worthy of all glory and honor. Take control of the throne of our lives and conquer all of our affections and seize all of our allegiance until there is nothing and no one else that compares to you in our hearts. Lord, we pray for every soul gathered here to experience the warmth of your presence. We pray for all our visitors and friends especially that they would leave here today with nothing less than eternal life itself and the greatest gift of your Son. We pray that the word that goes forth from your mouth shall not return to you empty, but accomplish what you so desire in us today. And so as we turn to the preaching of your word, we ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, open our eyes, that we may see wonderful things and more of Christ. Set ablaze our hearts with holy convictions and make this sermon most useful for the glory of your name. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Every Christmas, we remember and celebrate our Lord's entrance into the world. And when we think about the Christmas story, we think about the miracle of the virgin birth. We think about the angels, the shepherds, the wise men, and of course, a little baby boy in the manger. But we don't often associate with the Christmas story the fulfillment of prophecy. You see, the Christmas story cannot be isolated from the events of the Old Testament. Rather, it is the Old Testament that sets up the necessary context for Christmas to be possible. In ages past, the prophets foretold and anticipated a very, very special child who would be born into the world to become its savior. So today I want to draw your attention to a remarkable prophecy written 700 years before the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 9. 
Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. This was a reading of God's word. During the time of Isaiah, darkness consumed the people of Israel, and their fields were flooded with the blood of the victims of war. There were far greater atrocities in Israel at this time than what we might see on the news today. In 700 BC, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah. They fought wars against each other, while also fighting wars against the surrounding pagan nations who sought to invade them. And from the ashes of chaos, God raised up the prophet Isaiah to declare to his people that the long-lasting war on every side, the political unrest, the famine in the land, was the hand of God's judgment upon them who had turned away from him and bowed their knees to idols. The result of their rebellion was only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. Through the lips of Isaiah came this message of judgment. But God also had a message of hope for his people. The ninth chapter of Isaiah begins as so. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Here in verse 1, we find the pronouncement of peace to those who live in despair. There will be 
no more gloom in the humbled lands of Zebulon and Naphtali in Galilee. We must ask, why are these regions in Galilee described as the humbled land? Well, they are located at the northern border of Israel, and so they would be most susceptible to enemy attack. During the Assyrian invasion, Galilee was the first to be conquered. Its towns were ravaged, and the people were deported to foreign nations as slaves. And the Jews that remained in Galilee lived in utter humiliation, as the Gentiles and the people from other nations occupied their land. Hence, the name Galilee of the nations. Yet the promise we see here is that in the future, God will honor Galilee of the nations. But what good can possibly come out of Galilee? A land that was conquered by Gentiles and filled with pagan worship. Well, a few centuries after Isaiah's prophecy, a certain man walked these very lands in Galilee, healing the sick, feeding the multitudes, and preaching about the kingdom of God. You see, although Jesus was born in the southern town of Bethlehem, he grew up in Nazareth and began his ministry in Capernaum, both of which are northern towns in the region of Galilee. In Matthew chapter 4, we find this fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. What is more, after his resurrection, Jesus instructs his disciples to meet him on a mountain in Galilee to give them this great commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This past summer, I had the wonderful privilege to climb up this mountain in Galilee. And when you get to the top of this mountain, you are rewarded with a breathtaking view. Below is the Sea of Galilee and all of the significant sites where Jesus conducted his ministry. When the disciples heard Jesus say the words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, they must have seen in the background the waters, the very waters that Jesus walked on and calmed the storms. They must have seen where Jesus fed the thousands, healed the sick, and cast out the demons. The view from this mountaintop is a visible reminder that Jesus has authority over the storms, over nature, over demons, over disease, over everything. But what I also noticed while I was on the mountaintop was that in, a di in the distant horizon, you could see the routes that the disciples must travel 
You can see the mountains they must overcome to get the gospel out to Damascus, to Antioch, Tarsus, Ephesus, and all the Greek cities in Asia Minor. This is how the humbled land, the Galilee of the nations, was honored. In the past, it was a place of despair and gloom. But in the future, the place where the gospel was first preached by Christ, where the gospel was launched into all the nations with the authority of Christ, was Galilee. The people of Galilee, who was once consumed by darkness, will be honored, will be blessed by the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's why, if you look with me to verse 2, it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. God shall not forsake his people lost in darkness. But he himself shall step into creation to be their light. The gospel, according to John, perfectly captures this cosmic drama. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So let it be proclaimed to the ends of the earth that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He dispels the darkest night. He gives sight to the spiritually blind. He shall bring hope to the afflicted and wicked sinner. Hence, Isaiah can say in verse 3, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. You see, when a person truly encounters the light of Christ, they experience undeniable, unspeakable, uncontainable joy. Have you experienced that before? Isaiah describes it as a hard-working farmer in the field who reaps a great harvest and delights in abundance. He describes it as a warrior who escaped the sword in battle and tastes the riches of victory. And in verses 4 to 5, this joy is likened to the day of Midian's defeat. When God led Gideon and the Israelites to victory over a great army with only a small force. The yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor has been shattered. The people of God will no longer live under tyranny and oppression, for they have been delivered. 
and every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. This means that there will be no more need for instruments of war. For God shall bring an end to all wars and conflicts. No more fighting, no more bloodshed, but only everlasting joy and peace in the kingdom of God. But how can we be sure? How can we be sure of this glorious reality? How can we know that God will keep his promise? What is the sign that these things are to come? Gideon asked for a sign from God. He doubted whether God would really keep his promise and deliver Midian's defeat. So Gideon places a wool fleece on the ground of a harvest field and asks God to make the fleece wet with dew while keeping the ground dry. And surely it comes to pass. Well, this was not enough for Gideon. So he asks for another sign. Again, he places the wool fleece on the ground and this time he asks God to make the fleece dry and the ground around it covered with dew. And surely it comes to pass. So Gideon believes the sign, trusts in God, and he comes home with the victory. But the promise in Isaiah 9 is not the end of a war, but the end of all wars. So the people cry out, God! What is the sign that everlasting joy and peace is near? What is the sign of our eternal victory? Give us a sure sign to trust in your promise. And the Lord of heaven spoke. He spoke through the mouth of Isaiah in verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is a birth announcement of a very special child with a very special name. He will be called Wonderful Counselor because he is the embodiment of all wisdom and knowledge. He will be called Mighty God because he is the image of the invisible God who holds all authority and power. He will be called Everlasting Father because he will show unceasing care and love for his people as his very own kin. He will be called Prince of Peace because he brings true and lasting peace to a divided and perishing world. And not only is he a very special child with a very special name, but he also enters the world in a very special way. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we find more information about this heavenly sign. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive 
and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. You would think that someone wrote Isaiah after learning about the events of the very first Christmas and not before, centuries before. But ladies and gentlemen, this ancient prophecy has been fulfilled. The one called Emmanuel, which means God with us, was born in the little town of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. The one whom the entire universe cannot contain was contained in the womb of a virgin. God has chosen the means of a virgin birth as his supernatural entrance into the world. Or rather, it would be more precise to, to refer to this supernatural event as the virgin conception. Because in fact, the birth of baby Jesus was completely natural. Mary delivered baby Jesus naturally, as any other mother would deliver a baby. But it was the conception which was supernatural. And this is the wondrous mystery of the Incarnation. That the God of the universe would step into creation by being conceived in the womb of a mother he chose and created. In the words of Augustine, man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. Recently, God has blessed our church with some very cute little newborns at the back. Their hands are so little. Their feet are so little. Their yawns are so little. And uh, I just love and enjoy holding them. But I must confess, I didn't always love holding babies. Actually, I was very terrified of holding babies like many of you are, I see you, around little babies, because they are just so fragile. We don't know what to do with them. What if we hurt them? What if we drop them? And to think that the big and omnipotent creator of the universe would come to us as a small and helpless eight-pound creature is difficult to even begin to comprehend. But there really is no other statement quite like this one that says, God with us, Emmanuel. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He identified with humanity and takes on humanity in order to save humanity. Consider his humility. Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. You might be here today 
and you might be a skeptic, but you cannot deny that there is a reason why billions of people around the world celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ every Christmas. There is a reason why more books and songs have been written about him more than any other figure in human history. There is a reason why all of time before his birth is called B.C., before Christ, and all of time after his birth is called A.D., which stands for Latin phrase that means in the ear of the Lord. No one can deny that Jesus Christ stands as a centerpiece of human history. And this fact alone demands your full attention. Friends, Jesus didn't come into the world to become a celebrity or to sit on the throne of an earthly kingdom. Jesus didn't come into the world to begin a religion or start a revolution. But Jesus came into the world to end all wars and to secure everlasting joy and peace for his people. In his first coming, he came with humility as a defenseless, helpless child. He preached about repentance and about the kingdom of God that is near. He was betrayed by his own and was crucified on the cross. But in his second coming, the risen and ascended Christ will come with a sword to judge the living and the dead. He will strike down all the nations and forces who stand against him. Wake up from your slumber. This is no fiction, but this is a kind warning. There is a great tidal wave that is building up to sweep through the earth. Like a tsunami, the wrath of God will destroy all who stand opposed to him. Every soul shall be judged for their sins. And my question to you today is, where do you stand? Do you stand in judgment or do you stand forgiven? Think about this very carefully. Friends, there is only one way to be saved. There is only one Savior who is willing to stand in your place in judgment so that you can be forgiven. For those who put their faith in Christ, for those who lean on Christ, He bears the cross. He bears the shame. He takes the judgment that you deserve because of your many sins. He purchases your pardon and redemption in full. He pays it with his own life, all by grace alone. And so listen to me very carefully. God is very, very, very patient. He is patient. But do not be mistaken, his patience will not last forever. Do not be a fool and delay another day to come to Christ. 
Leave your miserable life of sin behind. Turn away from the path to hell and choose the better path. Choose Christ. The kingdom of God awaits where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. This is the guarantee for all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, look with me again to verse 6 of our passage. I want to draw your attention to the words, the government will be on his shoulders. This eight-pound baby boy, born in the little town of Bethlehem, will grow up to have very broad shoulders. Isaiah tells us that the government, the government of the world, will be on his shoulders. This means he will carry the full weight, the full burden, the full responsibility of governing the world. Every square inch of it. I ask you today, aren't you so sick of turning on the news and seeing conflict after conflict, war after war, bloodshed after bloodshed, liberal versus conservative, Democrat versus Republican, Palestine versus Israel. Let me remind you today, our hope is not found in a political party. Our hope is not found in a state. But there is only one who can carry the full burden of the entire world. And he does not delegate this responsibility to somebody else. He is not a lazy savior who is just sitting on his heavenly comfortable throne. But he has stepped into the world and he himself will carry the full responsibility of our safety, of our security, of our salvation. In Isaiah chapter 40, this is how we are told that Christ will rule the world. It says, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Dear beloved, in Jesus Christ, we find a king who is truly worthy of our allegiance. He does not rule with an iron fist. He does not abuse his power and authority, but he is the good shepherd. He rules by carrying his lamb close to his heart gently leading his flock. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what kind of burden you might be carrying today, but I bet every single one of you are carrying a heavy burden. 
but you can place it on the broad shoulders of Christ. In fact, throw yourself, throw your whole self onto Christ. For he is strong enough to carry you and your life and your family and their life and the whole world. And still, there is more room to spare. No matter how big your problems are, no matter what your worries are, humble yourself and learn to be carried by Christ. And you will know true and lasting peace. Isn't that what you want today? Peace. And so finally in verse 7, Isaiah says these words, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will rule and reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Do you long for this heavenly and eternal kingdom? Do you long for this peace that knows no end? Well, for the Church of Christ, this is not just wishful thinking, but both a present and future reality. The kingdom of God is here and now. Christ, right now, where is he? He is sitting at the right hand of God now, ruling over the affairs of the world now. As John Calvin said, it is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible as we bear witness to the lordship of Jesus Christ through our preaching and through our lives. We must live as though Christ is king now and we are his loyal subjects, citizens of his kingdom now. We cannot live no longer as closet Christians. There is no such thing as a closet, private, secret Christian. Do not be ashamed of your king and his teachings. Yet we also wait for the end of the ages when Christ shall return on the earth and fully establish his kingdom visible for all to see. We anticipate the day when sin, death, and evil will be vanquished forever and the presence of God will be our eternal delight. And we can be confident that these things will come to pass. How? Why? Why can we be confident of this? For Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Not the church, not you. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God is resolute to make this happen. He is intensely 
passionate about this. He will make sure that it will come to pass and nothing can stop him. For it is the zeal of the Lord that is driving redemptive history toward this final order of the new creation. He has promised it. Therefore, he shall accomplish it. His own integrity and glory is at stake. This is your assurance today. God's promises are so sure and reliable that you can take it to the bank of faith and cash it in today. And so, beloved church, this Christmas Eve, let us stand firm in the certainty of God's enduring word. Let us look to the sign from heaven, the one and only Son of God, given in love to a perishing world so that we might believe in him and have everlasting life. And let us behold him, let us cherish him, let us worship him, for he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords who reigns supreme now and forevermore. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the greatest gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. In him, we find life. In him, we find forgiveness of sins. In him, we find salvation today. Lord, I beg you, show mercy upon every single soul here. And as they walk out today, may they have eternal life in your Son, Jesus Christ. May they believe. Would you give us faith to believe? Lord, you are good. You are worthy of our honor and praise. All the glory and honor to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.